You guys ready to get in the Word this morning? I am excited to jump back into 2 Timothy. So if you want to turn in your own Bibles, we're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 3 this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 3. So we got two chapters left. We'll be in chapter 4 next Sunday. Of course, this year, those of you who have been with us, we've been going through the book of Acts. And the book of Acts ended with Paul in prison in Rome. And what we learned is that that was when Luke wrote the book of Acts. And what we learned from uh, Paul's last eight letters is that wasn't the end of his story, but he was released from that imprisonment, that he had one final missionary journey. On that missionary journey, he wrote 1 Timothy uh, from the city of Nicopolis in Greece. He is later arrested. He's brought back to Rome. He's in his second imprisonment, and this is when he writes his final letter. This is when he knows his life is coming to an end. It's a much different tone, a much different tenor than what we learn from Paul at the end of Acts, where he's receiving all these guests for two years. He's renting his own house. Now he is in imprisonment. People don't have access to him. No one is around him except Luke. He's cold. He's, he, he knows his, he's not expecting release like he, he did expect release uh, in his first imprisonment. Now he's telling Timothy, listen, Timothy, I fought the good fight. I've kept the faith. I finished the race. And he says, now in store for me is the crown of righteousness. I'm being poured out as a drink offering, meaning, you know, he understands that his life is about to be finished as he goes and, and is received into glory. According to tradition, he's beheaded under the reign of Nero, just, you know, soon after he writes 2 Timothy. So with all of that in mind, he writes one final last letter. It's his, really his last will and testament, so to speak, what, what he really wants to impress on the heart of his beloved son. That's who he calls Timothy, remember? He says, I don't have anybody in all of my ministry work the last 20, 25 years, I don't have anyone who is as like-minded as Timothy is. Now, Timothy, we know, joined him in the beginning of his second missionary journey. He was um, with Paul throughout the last probably 10, 15 years of his life, on and off. And Paul saw in Timothy the man who he was going to really trust his larger ministry to. And, and he wanted he saw in, in, in Timothy his, his, his number one disciple, saying, Timothy, you need to continue my work when I am gone. And so everything that is just on Paul's heart as he's sitting in this dungeon and he's in chains and he's cold and he's, he's saying, Timothy, I really want to impress on you these truths, right? I have some really important things to say. And we're going to get into some important stuff here in chapter 3. So let's begin reading 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. He says, Paul writes, But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, 
having a form of godliness, but denying its power, and from such people turn away. Timothy, turn away from these guys. The first point I want to make this morning is this, the cornucopia of unbelief, using a Thanksgiving image here. (laughs) The cornucopia of unbelief. Paul lists a lot of things here. He lists, in fact, 19 things. In fact, whenever Paul lists like works of the flesh, like in Galatians, it's like twice as long as his list of the fruits of the Spirit. (laughs) Because when you begin to dabble in the flesh and you're fleshly, I mean all sorts of strange things crop up in your life. And Paul is, is, he's like aware, like, listen, when you don't have the life of the Spirit in you, your life is messed up all over the place. And so he, he, he lists 19 things here for Timothy to be aware of in the perilous time he was living in. You know, the Jewish world at that time was stuffed to the gills with false teachers. I've been studying um, end time stuff, and we're going to get into that in the new year. I'm excited about that. One thing I've been studying is Matthew chapter 23, 24, and 25. And in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus this is, um, uh, this is right before his passion. Okay? This is, in fact, right before his last supper that he observes with his disciples. And that day, right before he observes the last supper, he goes to the temple precincts and he preaches a sermon to all of the Jewish leaders there. And what he does is he gives eight woes. And he says, woe to you Pharisees, woe to you scribes. You travel over land and sea and you make your converse twice the sons of the devil as you are, right? And he says all these sorts of things about how they, they strain out a, out a net and they swallow a camel. And basically, he, he's just reiterating what he had throughout his whole ministry, how they make void the word of God through their traditions. And, and he's just this thunderous, just... Um, strong sermon about uh, a condemnation uh, of those uh, scribes and Pharisees who sat in the seat of Moses at that time. And, you know, a lot of these 19 traits that Paul lists here, Jesus uh, condemns the religious leaders of that time as participating in these 19 sins. And, you know, I think Paul in this passage, we'll get to it more when we unpack last day stuff, but I think Paul here is speaking of the last days of the Jewish Jewish age in this passage. For instance, in about one year after Paul writes this letter, uh, we would see the beginning of the Jewish war in AD 66, when uh, uh, the Roman uh, uh, army would come in from the north and they come down ultimately, and in AD 70 they would destroy the great, you know, symbol of... uh, (laughs) Thank you, sir. They would destroy the great symbol of uh, Judaism, which was the temple. And so what the, the apostles are constantly aware of this great climactic day of the Lord, a day of judgment on the end of the Jewish age, on the end of the Jewish world. Uh, John is saying it's the last hour and there's a bunch of antichrists who have gone out everywhere. Paul is constantly warning of false teachers who have infiltrated all the churches he set out about Rome. And he's saying, listen, these are going to be the characteristics of these false prophets. These are going to be the characteristics of these false teachers. These are going to be the characteristics of these antichrists. And, and, and what does he say about them? Let's, let's look at... Uh, some of these uh, character traits. 
he first begins the list with lovers of themselves. Lovers of themselves. You know, there is a sense we're supposed to love ourselves, right? In fact, Jesus has said the second greatest commandment is what? To love your neighbor as what? As yourself, right? So we don't want to hate ourselves, right? God made us, right? And he remade us in the image of his son. We should love that, amen? We're to be grateful for the life he has given us. We are to treat our body well. We are to see the welfare of, of ourselves and others. Um, we are to love our personality and our unique giftings. But that is not the sort of love Paul is talking about here. When Paul says men will be lovers of themselves, he is talking about people who are selfish and who are self-absorbed, right? He's talking about people who set themselves up as the rulers of their own life. People who are proud and who are arrogant and turn away from both God and man. This kind of love of self is really the basic sin from which all other sins flow. It's the sin of pride, right? Jesus said that if we truly loved ourselves, you know what we would do? We would slay that old man. We would slay that pride. We would pick up our cross and we would follow him. And then we truly have life and we truly love ourselves. Jesus said this in Luke 9, 23. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life, if you really love your life, if you really want to save it, you'll lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and, himself, and is himself destroyed or lost? Lovers of themselves, well, if you love yourself, pick up your cross. Follow Jesus. The second thing he lists is he says they'll be lovers of money. You know, lovers of the, we're just thinking about lovers of themselves. Jesus, when he's giving his eight woes in the temple to the Jewish leaders, he was talking about how they were lovers of themselves. They would enlarge the tassel, their prayer tassel, so everyone would see that these guys especially took the prayer commandments, or, or all the commandments uh, important. They would desire the best seats in the synagogues and at feasts. They would enlarge the phylacteries on their head, those magic charm boxes. And, and, and they were just basically just putting a spotlight on themselves. That's a lover of themselves. Next thing he says, they'll be lovers of money. You know, during the offering, we saw how Paul gave advice to Timothy in his first letter about how to view money, that it is a material blessing from God that is meant to be properly stored, that one's trust should never be placed in money. In fact, uh, here's another verse we didn't read, 1 Timothy 6.10, it says this, For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. You know, Paul was warning Timothy of men who had an unhealthy love of money. People who viewed their prosperity solely by material things, like many of the Jewish leaders at that time did. To be a lover of money is to be covetous. Paul said in Colossians 3 that covetousness is idolatry. Uh, Jesus says you cannot serve God and mammon. When, when a man came to Jesus asking him to tell his brother to divide the family inheritance with him. This is how Jesus responded. He said this in Luke 12, 15. And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, 
for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Let's not be lovers of self. Let's not be lovers of money. The third and fourth thing he lists here is that they will be boasters and they will be proud. Proverbs 16, 18 says this, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. You know, boasting uh, and and pride can actually subtly eat people away at the spiritual level. This is what was happening to many of the Jewish leaders of Timothy's day. They were spiritually proud and arrogant, right? Uh, we talked about what, what they would do in, in their pride and, in, in, um, you know, desiring the best seats and, you know, desiring public greetings and desiring to be called father and all this sort of thing. Uh, Jesus taught a parable about the pride of the Pharisees in Luke 18, verse 9. He said this, Also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I possess. Can you imagine someone praying like this? Yeah, this is the, the attitude of, of, of a self-righteous person. Verse 13. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Paul says to Timothy, listen, there's going to be people who are boasters, people who are proud, people like the Pharisee in Jesus' parable in Luke 18. He goes on to say in the fifth and sixth character qualities, they will, there will be blasphemers and those who are disobedient to parents. You know, really, those two things carry the idea of a disrespect to all authority figures, right? The, the word blasphemy can also be translated simply love of insult. It is not just that one is blaspheming God, but they are insulting others. That is what a prideful and arrogant person does. They end up insulting others, like the Pharisees insulted the tax collector. Uh, they harm people with hurting words and hurting actions. You know, once again, uh, the Jewish leaders of Paul's day uh, were teaching also disobedience to parents. While this uh, uh, is something very near and dear to God, as God set up the jurisdiction of the family, you know, God set up three jurisdictions. He set up the jurisdiction of the civil authority, 
of the ecclesiastical authority of the church and of the family authority. And the family authority is so important to God, so central to his plan and to his purposes, that he enshrined it right in his Ten Commandments, the Fifth Commandment, honor your father and your mother. And Paul in the New Testament, what does he say? He repeats that command. In Ephesians, he says, honor your father and mother. Why? Because there's a blessing attached to it, that it might be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. And so when, when um, Paul says that there will come those who are disobedient to parents, really, what are they doing? Uh, they are rejecting the, the jurisdiction set out by God. And look what, what, what Jesus said to the Pharisees of their day, who were trying to find loopholes in this honor father and mother uh, principle. In Matthew 15, 5, he says this, But you say, he's talking to the Pharisees, whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift of God. Then he need not honor his father and mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. They were trying constantly to find loopholes around honoring your father and mother. And honestly, what a lot of them were doing, they were trying to get the money of these people uh, uh, through, through loopholes. And uh, blasphemy, insulting, uh, you know, disobedience to parents. That's all characteristics of the cornucopia of unbelief, right? How about 7, 8, 9, and 10? They're unthankful, unholy, unloving, and unforgiving. Unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving. You know, all of those things flow from being a lover of self. God wants us to be the opposite of those things, right? He wants us to be thankful, <laughs> holy, loving, and forgiving people. And when we pick up our cross daily, we can and will be all those things. Why? For I have been crucified with Christ Jesus. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loves me. You know what that means? It means I'm going to be a thankful person. It means I'm going to be a holy person. I'm going to be a loving person. I'm going to be forgiving, right? Why? Because I'm going to forgive one another, even as God and Christ Jesus forgave me. I'm going to find myself at the foot of the cross and say, man, God, I've been really, I don't deserve forgiveness, but you forgave me. So help me live in that act of forgiveness to others, right? In fact, that word unforgiving, it could be translated to be implacable in your hatred. Implacable in your hatred. It can mean that a man is so bitter in his hatred that he will never come to terms with someone that he's in an argument with. It, there's, um, you know, it's an unrelenting bitterness, this, this word conveys. And, and that's what characterizes the world, right? And Paul is saying this kind of attitude of, of unloving and unforgiveness and just unrelenting bitterness, that's going to characterize some of the, the, the false teachers and false prophets and wolves in your midst. And I don't want you to have anything to do with those kind of people. Verse 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15. Or sorry, these 11 through 15 characteristics. They're slanderers. They're without self-control. They're brutal. They're despisers of good. And they're traitors. Slanderers. The Greek word there is simply diabolos. Right? The devil, right? The devil is a slanderer, right? He, he, he's the first slanderer. In fact, what does he do in Genesis chapter 3? What does he do? He slanders God. Did God really say? Well, let me tell you the truth, because God's a liar. He slanders him. 
You know, and whenever somebody slanders, if you've ever been slandered, you know the pain of being slandered. Anyone here ever been slandered? It's evil. It is an evil thing to be slandered. And that is the fruit of the flesh. That's the work of the devil. Now, when you're slandered, you know what you got to do? You got to forgive, right? We're not going to be unforgiving, but we're also not going to participate in the activity of slandering either. They're without self control, they're brutal. You know, without self-control, what's that? That's the opposite of the fruit of the Spirit. What's the fruit of the Spirit? We have self-control. If you don't have self-control, guess what you're going to be? You're going to be brutal. Because you don't know how to control your passion. You don't know how to control your anger. You're not under the control of the Spirit of God. And so that means whatever just thoughts come to you, you're going to engage in those things. You're going to engage in those actions. And Paul says men are going to be like that. They're going to be brutal. They're going to be despisers of good. They're going to be traitors. Wow. You know, traitors, especially in that time, was, was a, a very significant thing. They're going to be people who are going to inform you to the Roman government. They're going to inform you to the local synagogues. They're going to get you to be dragged before the synagogues and be beaten. They're going to get you to be dragged before Rome, ultimately, when, when Nero turns nuts, and they're going to get you crucified. These are traitors. What else are they going to be? 16, 17, 18, and 19. They're going to be headstrong. They're going to be haughty. They're going to be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They're going to have a form of godliness, but they're going to deny its power. Headstrong, most translations actually have it as reckless. And then after these reckless people who have no self-control and who are brutal people and they're reckless in everything they're doing and causing, he says ultimately that it, 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 it comes down to them again being haughty, and lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. He comes full circle with the, the list, right? It begins with them being lovers of self, and then ultimately ends with them being lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And then finally, he says that they have a form of godliness but deny its power. The NLT, the New Living Translation, it says it like this. They will act religious but they will reject the power that could make them godly. You know, Paul is primarily speaking about people in the religious world, right? That's why he says avoid these people. People who are infiltrating the church, Judaizers, antichrists, wolves in sheep clothing, people like that. And he's saying, listen, these things are going to be in a heavy abundance so I want you to mark them, Timothy. Understand you're going to be dealing with these people. And that flows into what he instructs him to do in verses 6 through 9. Let's read it. 2 Timothy 3, 6. For of this sort are those who creep into the households and make captives of gullible women, loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth, now as Janus, as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapproved concerning the faith. But they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all, as theirs also was, meaning Janus and Jambres' was. So Paul gives an example of what these treacherous men will do in the church. He's basically saying they're going to infect baby Christians with their teaching and lead them away from the simplicity that is in Christ Jesus. 
The second point I want to make is this, point number two. Wolves in sheep's clothes will be made known. Wolves in sheep's clothes will ultimately be made known, right? Now, when Paul, you know, he makes this reference to gullible women, right? Loaded down with sins. Now, women in Paul's day, we got to remember something, especially when Paul is talking about men and women. you got to understand that he's speaking to the context of the culture he's writing to, right? So women in Paul's day and in, in the Roman world were a little bit different from the context of women in 21st century America. Meaning, like, you know, women in 21st century America, everyone is required to have schooling, right? Go to an elementary school, junior high. Most people go through high school, right? A lot of women choose to go to college, that sort of thing. In the ancient world, it wasn't like that, okay? Women didn't have education. They didn't have school. And what did that mean? It means they were more susceptible uh, to being deceived. They were more susceptible to, um, you know, false teachers specifically. And so what would happen is these false teachers, they would especially target those more susceptible people, which tended to be what Paul calls the gullible women, whether they were in Ephesus or elsewhere around the world. And he's saying, I want you to know that these gullible women, these baby Christians, they're being targeted, and they're just basically uh, believing, you know, um, believing what, what these guys are saying. They're always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Um, you know, they're, they're constantly chasing some new idea, some new fad. And Paul's going to... He's going to give Timothy the solution to this. He's going to point him to the inspired scriptures. You know, this is where you need to be grounded. Not in myths, not in fables, not in all these things the false teachers are bringing. You need to be rooted and grounded in the inspired word of God. Okay? And so, um, what we see is, um, we see that Paul uh, calls... Uh, he, he likens the false prophets to Janus and Jambres. Now, these were uh, the, the names that the Jews had given the magicians who opposed Moses. Remember how when God sent ten plagues against Egypt, how there were uh, Pharaoh's magicians who tried to replicate the plagues? Remember how they could replicate the first two plagues? Or they seemingly could, right? I mean, God turned the entire Nile into blood, right? And apparently these guys could do something similar. God made all these frogs come up uh, across the whole land. Apparently these magicians could do something similar that at least appeased Pharaoh's mind. Well, by the time the third plague comes around, the magicians, they could no longer be deceptive enough to <laughs> do what God did. So they tell Pharaoh, this one's the finger of God. Sorry, you know, uh, we can't help you here. Uh, this isn't a magic trick. And um, uh, the reality is um, what, what, what Paul says is that just as those guys were outed, right? They might have deceived Pharaoh and the Egyptians for two of the plagues. Ultimately, they were outed. They were shown to be false prophets. They were shown to be false magicians. And Paul is saying just as Jonas and Jambres were outed, so ultimately these false teachers... They will make themselves known. They will be outed, right? You will see that they are wolves in sheep's clothing. Uh, he says their folly will be manifest to all. Uh, Jesus said what? He said that we will know them by their fruit. 
we will be able to see who is the wolf in sheep's clothing. So we can mark and avoid those people. In fact, if, if someone is really plaguing a congregation, or their ideas are clearly unbiblical and they're plaguing a congregation, it's at time even biblical to name call, right? In fact, that's what Paul did in chapter 2. Remember, he called out two false prophets in their midst, Hymenaeus and Philetus, who said that the resurrection had already been passed and they were overthrowing the faith of some. Well, if someone's faith is being overthrown, guess what? And it's infecting people groups and it, it's leading people astray. Well, they need to be called out and say, man, uh, let's... Uh, Let's hand these people over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that their spirit might be saved. Let's see uh, what he goes on to say in uh, uh, verse 10. So after warning Timothy of perverse men, Paul then reminds Timothy of what the fruits of righteous ministry looks like. 2 Timothy 3 verse 10. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. So Paul in this passage, he contrasts his ministry with that of the false teachers who were infiltrating the church. And he reminds Timothy that just as Timothy had imitated Paul, as Paul was imitating Christ, uh, so he needed to continue to do that. He continued needed to be reminded of Paul's doctrine, of his manner of life, of the things that Paul went through in his life, and be assured of that the things that happened to Paul, he could expect similar things to happen to him. Why? Well, point number three I'm going to make is this. True discipleship means carrying a cross, dying to self. Okay? True discipleship means carrying a cross. You know, Paul, we went through the book of Acts. We saw this over and over again, right? Paul suffered a lot at the hands of the Jewish leaders. The three persecutions that Paul makes reference to here are all recorded in the book of Acts. And they all happen near Timothy's hometown. It's possible that Timothy was an eyewitness of those early persecutions, even seeing Paul stoned before his own two eyes, lying dead on the ground. At the very least, he would have been familiar with those events because that happened on his first missionary journey and in, in the hometown where Timothy was from. And then guess what happens when Paul comes back a year or two later? Timothy joins him. Whether he was a witness of those things that happened or he heard about it, he certainly knew very well the suffering and the persecution that Paul endured, even to that of stoning, stoning and, and dying and being resurrected again, right? And remarkably, Timothy was all in, even in light of all of the hardship he saw Paul go through. He, he says, I'm going to totally commit my life to you. He's about 20 years old. He joins with Paul, and for the next 15 years, he is discipled under his ministry. And Paul was reminding him that, that you know, Timothy, what you have seen me endure, what you have, have seen in me, you know, you, 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 um, 
you should expect in your own life. So I want to encourage you to keep the faith. I want to encourage you to be faithful. I want to encourage you to be loving. I want to encourage you to persevere. Right? Timothy, you're going to be surrounded by wolves. But um, stay the course and don't look back. In fact, remember, uh, Timothy's in Ephesus at this point. And if you can remember Paul's third missionary journey, when he's in Ephesus and he's going to Jerusalem, he's about to be arrested, he calls all the Ephesian elders down to Miletus. And what does he remind them? He's in tears. And he's reminding them about the wolves that are going to infiltrate the flock. And he says, I see this. I know this is going to happen. And so this is what I want you to do to make, to make sure that the church is strengthened in this time of great apostasy, in this time of great trial, in this time of great need. And, and, and Paul is seeing that prophetic uh, word that he had given come to fruition during this time that he's writing 2 Timothy. And he's saying, Timothy, be on the lookout. So what is the solution to all of this? How is Timothy going to endure as a good soldier of Christ? How is he going to fight the good fight of faith just like Paul did? Well, the primary way he's going to do it is by being rooted and grounded in the Word of God. That is what's going to anchor his soul. It's going to anchor his life. It's going to anchor his ministry, right? It is what's going to ultimately conform him to the image of Jesus. And so that's what Paul points him to at the end of this chapter. Timothy, I want you to know what the Word of God is, right? Let's read it, 2 Timothy 3.14. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Other, uh, the NIV says all Scripture is God-breathed. The word there in Greek, it's theopneustos. God, and then pneustos, it just means breathed or spirited. It's all Scripture, it's inspirited. All Scripture, it's breathed out by God. And is what? And is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. I think the old King James, is, it says that the man of God may be perfect, meaning that he may be fully matured, that he may be all that God has designed him to be. How are you going to be all that God has designed you to be, fully thriving in the will of God? Well, when you are steeped in the Word of God, right? For the Word of God is the will of God. The Word of God is what God thinks concerning you and me, what He thinks concerning our, word, our world, amen? So the last point I want to make is this. Point number four, Scripture is God-breathed and will keep us on the right path. Scripture is God-breathed. When I think about that, it being God-breathed or inspirited, it makes me think of another statement about Scripture in the New Testament, which is that the Scripture is a living thing. It is a living word. You know how our word is really an extension of who we are. That's why we need to be people of our word, right? Well, guess what? 
God's word is an extension of who he is. And God always keeps his word. And, and so, you know, this is what uh, Paul wrote in Hebrews 4, verse 12, concerning the word of God. Look what he says. He says, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. That's what the Word of God is like. That's why in Revelation 19, we see a sword that's coming from the mouth of Jesus. It's a picture of the Word of God going forth, ready to defeat the nations. John 6, 63, Jesus said this, he said, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words I speak to you are spirit and they are life. That's why Jeremiah is told to eat a scroll of the word of God. Why? Because they are life to us. That's why John in Revelation, when he's handed the scroll or he's handed a book, what does he say? The angel tells him to eat it. Eat it. Man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. The word of God is living. The word of God is powerful. It is an extension of who God is. In fact, Jesus said, every jot and every tittle of the law must be fulfilled. You know, Jesus had one of the highest views of Scripture you can imagine. He says in John 10, 35, the scriptures cannot be broken. <laughs> and in fact, when, he's, when he rose from the dead and he meets two disciples on the road to Emmaus, I want to jump forward to that passage. He says this in Luke 24, 27, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The scriptures. The scriptures. What was the scriptures? The Jews call it the Tanakh, right? Meaning the Torah, the writings, and the prophets. What was that? The Old Testament. The 39 books of the Old Testament. But guess what? It's not just the Old Testament, right? That is the word of God for us. It's the New Testament as well. It's the New Testament. In fact, in 2 Peter 3, verse 15, it says this, And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do what? Also the rest of the scriptures. What is Peter doing here in 2 Peter 3.16? He's saying all of Paul's letters, guess what? They are scripture on par with the rest of the scriptures. Meaning what? Meaning the rest of the Old Testament. I think 2 Peter is written in the mid-60s. I think all the gospels have been written by this time. He's probably referring to the gospels of scripture too. Here's another clear statement that all the Old and all the New Testament is the Scripture, the Holy Scripture, as Paul calls it, the set-apart Scripture, the sacred Scripture. Why is it holy? Why is it set apart? Because it is the only Scripture that is God-breathed, that is 
inspirited. That is spirit, that is life, that is living, that is powerful. You know, this is the Word of God. I like how 2 Timothy 3.16 and 2 Peter 3.16 are both 3.16 references. It helps me remember the truth of the Word of God. You just go to 3.16. In fact, there's a lot of 3.16 references that are really good. John 3.16. First John 3.16. And in fact, Luke 3.16. I could go over. I could, when I was in high school, I wrote down all the 3.16 references. All 66. Well, there's not 66. There's about 60 of them in the Bible. And I'm like, oh, these are all like super important texts. Right? We could just do a series on 3.16. And 2 Timothy 3.16 and 2 Peter 3.16 relate to the power of the Word of God. In fact, 2 Corinthians 3.16 talks about how the veil is taken away in Christ Jesus. It has to do with seeing Christ Jesus in the Word. We really have three 3.16s that have to do with uh, the power of the Word of God. The Word of God is living. The Word of God is powerful. You know, there's two ways you can respond to the Word of God. We see in the Old Testament. <laughs> two kings I'm going to talk about real quick. One is King Josiah. King Josiah was living toward the end of the kingdom of Judah. So northern Israel had already been taken away in captivity uh, by the Assyrians. The southern tribes, uh, Judah and Benjamin, are still around. And King Josiah, he rises to power in the midst of a deeply dark time. And one guy, he's, he's rummaging through the temple, and he finds something. He says, Josiah, I found a book. And they read it. They had never read the Bible in years. And Josiah falls on his knees and he tears his clothes and they all repent. And it's a time of great reformation under King Josiah. What brings the reformation? The word of God brings the reformation. Well, a few generations after that, another king rises. <laughs> and this is during the time of the prophet Jeremiah. And Jeremiah, I mean, he's just thundering these prophecies. And he has his scribe Baruch. Uh, come, and he, Baruch, he reads the prophecy from God's mouth in the temple precincts, and then he goes to the, the king's winter household, and he goes up to the king, and I just want to read what it says in, in Jeremiah 36, verse 22. It says this, Now the king was sitting in the winter house in the ninth month with a fire burning on the hearth before him. So picture the scene, the great king of Israel. He's in his winter palace. He's on vacation. He's got a great fire roaring in front of him. Verse 23. And it happened when Jehudi uh, had read three of or four columns that the king cut it with the scribe's knife and cast it into the fire that was on the hearth until all the scroll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. So Josiah, he hears the word of God, he falls on his knees, he tears his clothes, he repents. God brings a great restoration and reformation during his reign. This king, I think it's Jehoiakim, he hears the word of God and it's the direct opposite response. They get through about three paragraphs. He says, that's enough, give me that scroll. He starts cutting it up, throwing it in the fire, and it's burning up in flames. What happens? Well, a few short years later, Jerusalem goes up in flames and they're taken in captivity to Babylon. How one responds to the word of God 
will affect the direction of their life. Right? It will either be a lamp to your feet and a light to your path if you use it, or if you don't use it, you'll be stumbling around in darkness, right? I want to end with this. Psalm 119. Psalm 119, you should take time to read it this week. What is Psalm 119 about? It is about rejoicing in the glory of God's Word. It's the longest chapter in the whole Bible. The longest chapter in the whole Bible is devoted to rejoicing in the glory of God's Word. It's, I think it's 176 verses. And what it is, it's a long Hebrew acrostic poem, meaning the Hebrew language is 22 letters. The writer takes the 22 letters, and with each letter, he describes the glory of God's Word for several verses. You know, um, Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, Hey, Vav, Zion, all the way down, right, to the end. And, 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 and I just want to read some of, some of uh, the things he says. Psalm 119, verse 9. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. That's how. You want the cleansing power of God in your life? Take heed to the word of God. With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments or your instruction. Verse 11. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Let's hide the word of God in our heart. Amen. Verse 14. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much in all riches, riches. Rejoice more than one who has gold and silver. Verse 28. My soul melts from heaviness. What do we do in that time? Strengthen me according to your word. Is your soul melting? Get in the word of God. You'll be strengthened, I promise you. Verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Verse 130, the entrance of your words give light. It gives understanding to the simple. Aren't you glad? Verse 162, I rejoice at your word is one who finds a great treasure. You know, you know, that makes me think, you know, some of these cultures who the first time they get the Word of God translated in their language, it's the most valuable thing. It's the most valuable thing to them. Far more valuable than anything else It's the Word of God to someone who's never heard the Word of God before. And what do we do? A lot of times we treat this as something that's not more far valuable than silver and gold, right? And what happens? We're not strengthened. We're not built up. We're not edified. What does Paul say? All, uh, he says, all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. Every single bit of Scripture is profitable. Amen. Every single bit. I mean, you know, I, I've, I've read a 300-page book just on the dietary law of Leviticus. Why? Because I think it's a prophet. Not because I follow the dietary law. But there are things in it that I see Christ in and I say, wow, that's really interesting. That's really powerful. That's even profitable for me today, right? Does that mean everything is of the same level of profit? No. I'm not telling you to go read the dietary law. 
What does Jesus say? You tithe, mint, dill, and cumin, but you reject the weightier matters of the law, love, justice, and faithfulness. Just because all the Bible is inspired, which it is, and all the Bible is profitable to us, which it is, there are some things which are weightier matters, which are more important, which is what? It's the death, it's the burial, it's the resurrection, it's the ascension, it's the pouring out of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, right? It's the things concerning our salvation and redemption. There is a greatest commandment. There is a new commandment that you love one another even as I have loved you. Let's keep the main things the main things while at the same time not neglecting anything. So, in light of the perilous times, in light of all the problematic people Timothy is having to deal with, Timothy, or Paul instructs Timothy what? Stay on the straight course. Get in the Word of God. As he said in the chapter before it, in, 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 in chapter 2, study to show yourself approved. A workman that needs not be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth. Paul is constantly hammering this point home, right? We cannot, we must not divorce ourselves from the Word of God, for man must not live on bread alone. They must live on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. It is God-breathed. It proceeds out of His mouth. This, this word is inspirited. It is inspired. I mean, we could talk all day long on the supernatural aspects of this book that show us its divine nature, its inspiration, that it's come from God and not, not just the genius of man. But truly, there's, there's no way the book could have been put together the way it has by the genius of man. It, it really took the genius of God. You know what we get to do again today? We get to celebrate another baptism. Amen? Amen. <laughs>